Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. This week on the show, reporter Jacob Solis debriefs reporter Megan Messerly on her second trip out of the state this month. This time, she headed to New Hampshire, where the primaries were decidedly less hectic than the Iowa caucuses. After that, intern Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and I got an opportunity to sit down with the First Lady, Kathy Sisolak, as well as Carson City's Arts and Culture Coordinator, Mark Salinas, to talk about a new arts initiative in the Governor's Mansion. We also got to ask about her goals as the First Lady. At the end of the episode, Jacob and I recap the Oscars. But first, let's hear a few indie stories read on the radio for our partners over at KUNR Public Radio. Originally reported by Jacob Solis, a new political action committee is backing a proposed constitutional amendment that would remove the Board of Regents from Nevada's constitution. The move signals the first effort by outside forces looking to tip the balance in the final stretch of a five-year-long effort to pass the amendment. The PAC, Nevadans for Higher Quality Education, was formed earlier this month and has yet to file any financial information. First proposed in 2017, the amendment would seek to increase legislative oversight and control of the state's higher education system by removing the Board of Regents from the Constitution outright. Legislators have long complained of efforts by the regents and higher education system to evade legislative oversight, often through invocation of their place in Nevada's Constitution. Opponents say the change will act as the first step in allowing the governor to appoint regents rather than allowing voters to decide. Originally reported by Tabitha Mueller, a national gun safety group has raised Nevada's gun grade from a D to a C plus after lawmakers passed multiple gun control measures in the 2019 session. The Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence announced the higher grade as part of its annual review of gun safety laws across the U.S. It attributed the change in grade to the enactment of a universal background check requirement, red flag legislation, and a law holding gun owners accountable for negligently storing firearms. Although the group's press release celebrated Nevada's new gun safety laws, it also pointed out that in 2017, the state had the 14th highest gun death rate in the country and the third highest rate of guns sold in Nevada that are used for crimes in other states. It said that Nevada legislators could decrease those rates and continue strengthening gun laws by requiring a waiting period following all gun sales, as well as adding more restrictions for people accused of domestic violence from owning or possessing a firearm. For KUNR News, I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. The New Hampshire primary has come and gone, and though we have the results this time, not much has been settled in the race to become the Democratic nominee for president. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders edged out South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg for the win, with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar close behind. And with distant finishes for Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Vice President Joe Biden, the race, for now, appears to be wide open. Lucky for us, our very own 2020 reporter Megan Messerly was on the ground in New Hampshire, and she joins us now. Megan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on the phone. Yay. <laughs> Yay, we've, we did it. Scheduling was hard, but we did it. So you were in New Hampshire just before, during, and just after the primary. Can you walk us through quickly what it was like? Right. I mean, I think the interesting thing leading up to the New Hampshire primary, I mean, I went to quite a few events. I went to an event for Joe Biden, uh, one for Pete Buttigieg, 
uh, and one for Bernie Sanders. And talking to people at those events, the one thing that they were happy about is that they were going to be voting in a primary and not a caucus. Obviously, that comes after the wake of all of the drama in the wake of Iowa's caucus, where results were delayed by several days. Uh, New Hampshireites were just very happy to be voting in a regular primary. And that seemed to be the mood in New Hampshire on the day of the primary. There, people went to the polls, they cast their preferences, uh, they left, and then results came out. And we found out who was the winner. So it was a pretty, uh, you know, straightforward process, at least in terms of the mechanism of things. Well, with that smooth sailing mechanism, let's talk about the results, which we actually have this time. And, and what those results mean for Nevada, I think, is, is really what we want to drill down in here. So let's start with the winner here, Bernie Sanders. He came out with a narrow lead in New Hampshire. And he's been close, nipping on the heels of Joe Biden here in Nevada. But we don't really have polls. How is Sanders doing in Nevada? What do we think he's going to do here in the intervening couple of days here before the caucus? Right. So I think the important thing to think about Bernie Sanders, it's not his first presidential campaign, obviously. So there are folks here from 2016 who knew and loved him and they, you know, make up the core of his base this time around. Uh, Obviously, we're looking at, you know, the size of his organization, because in a caucus state, um, you know, how you're organizing on the ground matters. He has by far the biggest team. Uh, His team told me they have now more than 250 paid staffers on the ground in the state. Next second biggest campaign is uh, in terms of size is Pete Buttigieg's and his team is about 100. So quite quite a large operation he has here, you know, and he's and he's known like you mentioned, you know, we, we've seen him climbing in the polls with with Joe Biden. They were, you know, tied or close to tied in some of the recent polls we had from January, though we haven't had any polling with Iowa and New Hampshire as of yet. Uh, you know, but he's well positioned, I think, coming into Nevada. He did well in Iowa, you know, even in his New Hampshire um, acceptance speech at the, you know, victory party I was at at Southern New Hampshire University in Manchester on Tuesday night. Um, you know, he was saying we won Iowa, right? And that's, that's been his argument is we won the popular vote, the raw vote in Iowa, um, and that, you know, Pete Buttigieg just won the delegate vote, you know, which is, in the end of the day, you need delegates to win. So that's, that's kind of all that matters. But it does help, you know, show popular support. But, you know, I think I think he's well positioned, um, you know, coming into in Nevada. Uh, the one thing that'll be interesting to watch and has been the developing story is the culinary union, sort of the politically powerful hotel workers union here in Nevada uh, have taken a stand against him. They've been circulating a flyer amongst their members that says that Sanders wants to end culinary health care if he's elected president. That's referring to Medicare for all, which he supports, um, a single payer government run health insurance system. The culinary union does not support Medicare for all. They have a union health trust that covers 130,000 of their members and their family members. Um, and they really like that plan and they've negotiated for it over decades and they don't want to see anything that's going to take it away. And so it'll be interesting to see what impact, if any, culinary stand on Bernie uh, takes you know, in this election. And now just to drill into that a little bit, the the sort of tension between the culinary and the, the Bernie campaign has really come into sharp focus these past couple of days over, over that that clash on, on health care. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what's been going on online, really? Because that's where most of this fight's been happening. Right. Yeah. So, so to sort of, you know, go through step by step what happened. First of all, there was um, all the days kind of blur together, but there was a flyer that I reported on that the culinary union was circulating amongst its members. And that flyer was not, you know, quite as direct on healthcare. It, 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 it was a little bit more pointed than the union had been in the past. And 
suggesting that a candidate who supports Medicare for all would lead to four more years of a Donald Trump presidency. But it wasn't it didn't mention Warren and didn't mention uh, or Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, I should say. Uh, and it didn't mention Bernie Sanders by name. It just kind of directed its ire more specifically at Medicare for all and sort of hinted that this was an issue for presidential candidates who would be supporting that policy. Um, flash forward a couple of days, I got a hold of another flyer, which was much more pointed about Bernie Sanders. This is the one I was referring to that said that he would end culinary health care. It was actually a little bit more gentle toward Elizabeth Warren. It noted that she has sort of a transition to Medicare for all um, built in and mentioned that collective bargaining would somehow be a part of that process. So they weren't as direct on her. Um, and then they sort of praised the other candidates who'd come to speak to the culinary union. That's um, Tom Sayer, the California billionaire, um, Amy Klobuchar, Minnesota senator, Pete Buttigieg, as we've been talking about, for actually coming to the union and for, you know, saying that they have plans that, is, that are going to protect their health care. Oh, and, and Joe Biden, I should mention, as well, came to the union. And they, you know, they all did really well with the union. Interestingly, when Bernie Sanders came to the union for a town hall, I thought he actually did quite well. He was getting a lot of from the crowd. They were, you know, especially, you know, when he was talking about labor, he sort of has this cadence and he gets into the rhythm and they were, you know, cheering on it. Obviously, Medicare for All is sort of the hard point, but, um, you know, it stands to reason that there are culinary union members who support Bernie Sanders. Um, and the union right now is trying to make sure that they don't. <laughs> Right. And so as as much as I want to continue to talk about this very fascinating fight between the culinary and, and Sanders, I want to drill into some of the other candidates um, coming out of New Hampshire. And specifically, I'm looking at the moderate wing of the party because it's become incredibly fractured after those first two contests. And we have Pete Buttigieg coming out very strong from Iowa and New Hampshire. We have Amy Klobuchar emerging as another choice for this moderate wing. And we have Joe Biden kind of taking a back seat. Now, this was kind of the plan from the beginning. But can candidates like Buttigieg and Klobuchar sort of take away the edge that Biden has up until now had in Nevada? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, one of the things that we'll be looking at, um, I think, is specifically, um, you know, the communities of color in Nevada and how voters of color are feeling about the candidates. It's a very, you know, white field of candidates. Joe Biden has, up until this point, sort of had the lead in this race because he has been around. He's a known quantity, right? There's trust there. Um, that's one of the things, you know, I talk to groups that work in the Latino community or the AAPI community or the African-American community, and their complaint is that candidates come in, they ask for their votes, and then they leave, right? And they're looking for candidates that are going to build a relationship and build up that trust. And Joe Biden has had that trust so far. Um, the interesting thing, I think, will be the impact that his performance in Iowa and New Hampshire has on the Nevada caucus um, and whether that's enough to sort of uh, make those folks take a, a second look at, um, at either Pete Buttigieg or, or Amy Klobuchar. I mean, it's, it's hard when you see his performance in Iowa and New Hampshire and if folks are going to be thinking, OK, I like Joe Biden. Um, you know, I feel like he I agree with him. Uh, he's you know, we align on all the issues, but I just don't know if he's going to be able to win this thing. And I think folks, you know, are, are probably going to be uh, giving another look at other candidates. One of the things we know as well to that point is that, um, you know, a lot of Nevadans have not decided who they're going to support in this caucus. Poll after poll has shown that. Um, a lot of the support is still movable. There's, you know, still a lot of folks shopping around and looking at the different candidates. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, going to make it harder for, for Joe Biden in this contest. 
Okay. So there is a couple more candidates I do want to get to. And, and first among them is Elizabeth Warren. Now, she was at one time a front runner and now has sort of slipped back in the polls and, and finished fourth, a distant fourth in New Hampshire. Um, she's been there, thereabouts with the front runners in Nevada. But do you think that even with a strong ground game here that she can maintain pace with candidates like Buttigieg and Sanders and the others? Yeah, it's really interesting. Her team, you know, landed earliest on the ground in Nevada. Um, They early on, people were describing her campaign as a monster. They just had a really good operation. Um, They've since been overtaken by some of the other campaigns, notably the Sanders and Buttigieg campaigns. Um, But they still have a good operation on the ground, you know, and they've built relationships. They've been working um, very hard. Uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with her support here. Um, And I think also sort of how much of that was tied as, you know, as we were talking about the sort of rise she experienced and then eventual fall are, you know, it's her performance in in Iowa, New Hampshire, you know, which weren't necessarily bad, right, but they were kind of middling performances um, considering where she had been in the race just a few months ago. So I I think it'll be interesting. I think also we're going to have to see um, how the debate goes next week. Uh, Obviously, we saw Amy Klobuchar have an extremely strong debate performance and can't say that's the only reason she did well in New Hampshire, but certainly, you know, her strong, stronger than expected performance in Iowa sort of carried her into New Hampshire where, you know, she was not regarded as having a substantial field operation at all and yet managed, you know, to come come out in third in that contest. You know, a lot of that has to do, I think, with folks taking a second look at her. And so I think this next week is going to be about candidates who aren't, you know, aren't Bernie Sanders and aren't Pete Buttigieg, you know, asking voters or doing something to, you know, get into voters' minds and say, hey, you know, take a second look at me. Now, I want to get to what next week's going to look like real quick here. But before I do, I want to ask quickly about Tom Steyer. Now, he finished pretty far back in Iowa, New Hampshire, but he has been in the TV markets here in Nevada and also in South Carolina and some other early states and just blanketing the airwaves. So he surprised everyone in last month by coming in, what was it, fourth uh, with something like over 10 percent of uh, support in the polls. And uh, it was dubbed Steyer Mentum, and it was a moment. Will that hold? Do we know? I don't know that there's a good way of knowing, but I think based on what we're seeing so far, I mean, he's still getting hundreds of folks to show up to his events. You know, the, the fact of the matter is other candidates have been focusing on Iowa, New Hampshire. Um, Sire has two. He was running ads in those two states. I think the difference was, you know, Sire was running $10 million in ads here where other candidates, you know, hadn't even gone up in the air or only barely starting to go up on the air um, just in the last few months. And, you know, like it or not, ads have uh, quite an impact on the presidential race. You know, I've talked to folks at his events who say, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like they saw an ad and were a Steyer supporter the next day, but they saw the ads and, you know, got them thinking and they wanted to do a little more research online. Um, They decided to show up to one of his rallies to see what this guy is all about. You know, and so advertising can be an extremely effective method of getting your strategy out there. I think, uh, like like you were alluding to, he did not do very well in Iowa and New Hampshire, and so does that give his supporters here pause? I think we'll have to wait and see what the outcome is, but certainly of Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, he's certainly the best position to pick up delegates in Nevada, much better than he was in Iowa, New Hampshire, just because I think those races were, you know, so so overshadowed by, you know, all the candidates spending all their time and attention there, whereas Sire's really you know, been the one to make Nevada a significant priority of his in the last couple of months. Okay. Well, we'll finish with this. By the time this interview airs, there's going to be about seven days and change between, you know, this podcast and the caucus itself. 
can you walk the listener through exactly what's going to happen over the next week? Right. So, you know, the first thing to, to take a look at is early voting. Uh, that begins on February 15th, uh, Saturday, runs for four days. Uh, folks will be able to show up to polls, cast their presidential preferences early, and those votes are going to flow to their home precincts to be counted just as if they had been there in person on caucus day. So that's going to happen, will be something to keep an eye on. Candidates are going to be campaigning. They're already in town campaigning. They're going to keep campaigning, uh, particularly in advance of the Democratic presidential debate, which is on Wednesday. Um, that will obviously be sort of the last chance for, for folks to make a, a, an appeal to Nevada voters in a sort of debate-style format and sort of uh, show their differences between, between one another. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, and then, you know, we'll be in the final few days before the caucus, really. I mean, uh, the caucus is on February 22nd, so it'll be sort of the, the anticipation and the, the final gear up to that. Okay. Well, we will be all over the caucus for the next seven days and change. Um, and Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, okay. cool. Thank you so much. Good morning. My name is Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez. I'm a reporter with the Nevada Independent, and I'm here with Joey Lovato. Hello. And we're here today with um, First Lady of Nevada, Kathy Sisolak, and Mark Salinas, who is the director of Carson City's Department of Arts and Culture. Yes, thank you. Hi. Good morning. Great to be with you today. Good morning. Alrighty. So, how we'll go into the art initiative, and um, if you both want to talk about how the idea for the initiative came up and how you work together on that. I, I thought it was really important to have art in the mansion and particularly Nevada art. Uh, this mansion is so beautiful and uh, so historic that we started this exciting program, this art initiative that was organized to display uh, Nevada artworks, contemporary artists. A, a bold concept. Uh, such as this is only executed with the statewide partnership of arts professionals throughout the state that share the common uh, vision and value of elevating the arts through access. It's just through the relationships and the communications that we've developed here throughout here in Carson City and throughout the state that allowed this to happen. I think it challenges uh, the mansion to see itself as a like an alternative venue, for, for, you know, for for these artworks and. And I certainly think it challenges Carson City to see itself uh, as a cultural destination, sort of as the host of all this talent statewide. And, and this art initiative could not have happened without Mark Salinas and the Carson City Department of Arts and Culture. And of course, we want to thank uh, Mayor Bob Kroll and the City Council for being so supportive. Um, so what do you look for in submissions and for a unifying theme for the art? You know, the goal is to, it's eligible for contemporary living Nevadan artists. We've identified three or four locations here in the mansion for them to um, temporarily display artworks for a period of six months. This gives them time for exposure, press, reception, stipend, uh, and also, to a certain degree, resume building. You know, and how we as a community, as a Department of Arts and Culture, can help build the economic value of our artists in their provenance and who they sell to. From what I understand, there's actually a bidding war on one of the pieces here, too. So, uh, sales as well. And just to go back, I mean, um, we believe arts are good, is a good business. 
And right here in Carson City, uh, we have 114 arts-related businesses that employ 350 people, including art schools, design and publishing, film and radio, and visual arts. Do you have any other initiatives that you want to see happening um, during the next legislative session? Since you kind of you know, have the ear of the governor. <laughs> I, I would assume, right? <laughs> uh, not at this moment. Uh, as we talked about breast cancer awareness, Mama Van uh, is something that uh, First Lady Dee McGuinn uh, started, and we hope to carry on that uh, legacy. Uh, my mother is a breast cancer survivor, and so is my sister-in-law. So this is a very important uh, program. Today, though, we could talk about Go Red for Women. Today is Wear Red Day for heart awareness, especially for women. It's the uh, leading cause of death for women. Um, So we hope to bring critical awareness to that. Kathy, have you had to take a step back from your previous job as a financial consultant during your time as First Lady? I have not. I have been able to uh, manage both uh, the First Lady duties as well as my business. Uh, fortunately, I own my own business, so um, I can, my hours are flexible. Um, so that's, and it really couldn't happen without a great team, and we have a great team. Is, is life as the First Lady what you expected it to be like? Well, I had no expectation, so (laughs) I never imagined I would be First Lady, and of course I have no expectation, but it's certainly an honor and a privilege to be First Lady. Uh, We have been able to meet uh, so many wonderful people and see so many parts of Nevada that we hadn't seen before, and uh, really, it's, it's really so much fun to be able to explore the state. What do you feel like your role as the First Lady should be? Do you feel like it's going to be different than any past governors? Or, or uh, you know, I again, with really very little expectation, I think you, this role is what you make it to be. It's as important as you want it to be, or maybe sometimes it's, uh, I don't have a, a family that's growing up, so I have, my time is flexible. Um, I just hope that uh, I'm a positive influence and that I can help all Nevadans wherever they're needed, whenever I'm needed. What does a typical week in your role as First Lady look like? (laughs) There's no... (laughs) Yeah, there's no such thing as a typical week. Uh, I cannot describe a typical week or a typical day. It changes every day, uh, and, uh, and things come up, and you may think you have something planned, and it really doesn't happen or sometimes it just goes very smoothly. Do you get to spend much time with the governor? Um, do you get time to travel or vacation together, or is that a little limited? Well, our, our leisurely travel is limited just because we're very busy given it's the first year, uh, but we do travel a lot as in our first couple roles, whether it's visiting parts of the state or going, um, like today, we're leaving to Washington, D.C. for the National Governors Association. Um, So we travel and spend time that way. And I think it's good quality time for us. I know you're from Vegas. Do you spend a lot of time in Vegas, or do you try and balance your time between here and Vegas, here being Carson City? Yeah, during non-legislative years, I spend most of my time in Las Vegas. And during the legislature, I spend uh, most of my time here. Uh, So it varies. Do you and the governor like to talk about budget issues, given your expertise in (laughs) finance? 
well, I think it's situational. Uh, we do on occasion talk about budgets, but it's uh, not very often. I'm <laughs> I try to stay out of the state's budget <laughs> business, uh, but certainly if he has something that he wants to ask me, I'm happy to try to answer any questions. But really my specialty besides budgeting is issuing bonds. The budget part of me is in history. Do you miss that at all? Uh, I, I sort of miss it. You know, I'm a numbers person, so I enjoy numbers, whether it's issuing bonds or preparing budgets. But when I was working at the county for 15 years, I prepared budgets for 15 years. So that, that was plenty of time. <laughs> um, I think my last question will be about the artists that you chose to um, showcase the, for the first round of this initiative. So tell me a little bit about Ronnie Rector and why you chose her artwork. Sure. Well, um, there are four panelists um, from Nevada that made that choice. I just chaired it. Uh, Ronnie is from Incline Village. For our very first inaugural um, exhibition, I had asked that the, that the artist be from Carson City. Mimicking uh, our Mayor's Arts Award program, uh, we opened that definition to artists who live, work, or exhibit in Carson City so we can get a little bit larger footprint, which reflects the community. Ronnie has been exhibiting uh, down the street for a number of years and has won a number of awards. Uh, Ronnie's watercolors are absolutely spectacular. We, this first round, uh, we have actually received applications from Incline Village uh, to Boulder City. And that's just two months in. I believe with more promotion and the panelists, uh, we're going to get applications all throughout the rural and urban uh, areas of Nevada. You know, uh, Ronnie's work is, for me, is very photographic. It's, it's, a, it's a stillness of, of a moment. And I, and I love it being seen here. I mean, look around. This is a beautiful place, especially with this. The viewer, the people listening can't see it, but the sunlight coming into these sheer uh, curtains, it's absolutely beautiful in here this morning. And I think uh, to have a still moment painted by a contemporary artist in the backdrop of all this linear history uh, kind of gives me a little, some chills. And I think it's a great way for artists to see their work in Nevadans' uh, history. Yeah, that's 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 my that's my plug for Ronnie Rector. Congratulations, Ronnie. Job well done. Doesn't he describe it beautifully? <laughs> yeah, really yeah. Yeah, very visual. I, I just have one more question for the first lady. You were involved in PERS and and, and and the Clark County budget for a while. Do you feel now like you're more involved in politics or less involved? <laughs> Uh, well, being married to a politician, I'm, I'm certainly more involved in politics, uh, but uh, I've always had an interest in politics just because I worked at Clark County. My business is primarily local government, state and local governments and municipalities. Uh, so there's always an element of politics in that. Well, thank you guys so much for, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. All right, so we are here at the last segment of the podcast, the fun segment. It's generally been about movies the last couple weeks because the Oscars have been coming up and we're all uh, big moviegoers here at the Indy. Uh, but now the Oscars have passed, and so I'm here with reporter Jacob Solis, and we are going to chat about the Oscars. Hey, Jacob. That's right, we are. Yeah. 
So uh, I guess to start off, what did you what did you think of the Oscars this year? So I think the Oscars this year are in really an interesting position, right? Because I think more and more, I mean, this has always been the case, but the artifice of like, ah, oh, these are awards for the real best movies of the year, that's been falling away. And I think 2020 like hit that nail in the coffin because even though Parasite won Best Picture. I think we can all agree Parasite really was the best picture, and the Academy made made the right move here. I mean, I don't know if everyone can agree, but I know that uh, us here at the Indie all uh, really liked Parasite. I'm going to say at least a plurality and probably a majority of people who saw Parasite and a majority of the other Best Picture nominees will agree that Parasite was the best. I think Marriage Story was my favorite but i don't know if it would have ah. it's not like uh you know it's it's not the best in terms of you know what the academy would have voted for well exactly and i think that brings up a good point which is that when we're talking about like what does the academy even give best picture they were never going to give it to the mar- or to marriage story they were never going to give it to the irishman because those are netflix exclusives right so the academy doesn't want to reward streaming services and so they they give them handouts by nominating them but they have not shown a willingness to actually give them the award and so I think that's crucial, right? There's th- that artifice of the Oscars is clearly an artifice now. And even though Parasite won, it sort of won in spite of itself because we have movies like 1917, this big war movie, right? We've got Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which seemed almost tailor-made for the Academy. I, Suspicious. I, I think that for me this year was probably one of like the best years in movies that I've seen in a, a really long time. And I was more bummed to see that some of the movies that I really liked this year didn't get nominations. Um, but I, I guess I understand why, just because there were so many good movies this year. And uh, honestly, I, I think that everyone that was nominated, generally speaking, was was probably pretty deserving of it, other than, you know, I, I, I was surprised to see Ford versus Ferrari was up for Best Picture, but I was really bummed to see that The Lighthouse only got one nomination for cinematography. I was really bummed to see that Uncut Gems didn't get any nominations. Um, the Last Black Man in San Francisco was one of my favorite movies this year, and it didn't get any nominations. Although I don't know if it was eligible, um, but that's a whole other discussion of you know what's eligible and what's not. All right, not only this, and I mean the movie has to campaign. Uh, for all this stuff and if the producers aren't willing to engage in that campaign the academy often won't reward them for it no matter what the quality of the movie is or was or whatever so uh, this process is so political that um and and like political from like a movie perspective right not even you know american politics right that like although of course that plays a role in everything it feels like nowadays Oh, definitely. But I think what matters a lot more is the way that the producers and actors and directors and, you know, the thousands of people who are in the Motion Picture Academy of America, like, or wait, is that the right academy? No, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That's the correct academy. All those people care about movies, right? And so, and that's it, really. And then being pandered to, that's the second criteria. And if those two things aren't fulfilled, they don't reward skill or talent or whatever. And... I don't know. 2020 feels like the culmination of that. You felt you know. felt you felt pandered to. Yes. Well, at least with the nominees, not in the actual awards. But it feels like the awards were given as a reaction to this criticism of the nomination process, right? Mm. I I was relatively happy. Um, I think I have a little bit less cynical view than you, but generally, I thought the awards were pretty good this year. Um, and I I do understand where you're coming from, though. And I uh, I can see I could definitely make an argument. Uh, for for the pan- the pandering and I do feel like there definitely was some pandering this year as I think there is every year 
Um, but but overall, I was I was pretty pleased to see the Parasite. You know, they did super well. Um, but again, I, I feel like the Oscars is this weird. It's funny when you think back to what, what did Bong Joon Ho call the Oscars? A, a local competition yeah, it's for locals. I think, I think so. so it, it's it, it's sort of this weird um, bubble of American film prestige and it has this outsized influence on how everyone perceives movies because everyone you know everyone who won I mean like Joker's going to get a second look from people because of Joaquin Phoenix's performance in it and his Oscar from that um, people are going to look again at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of Brad Pitt I mean people like that movie anyways but you know the, the these Oscars matter for money and I think like that that feels more relevant now than it has in the past I think well, we can let the audience decide. So uh, if, uh, if you listeners have anything that you feel like we have touched on and you agree with, or if you think we're totally off base, you can email me at joey at the nvnd.com or jacob at jacob at the nvnd.com to let us know your thoughts. Uh, send all your hate mail to Joey, though. <laughs> all right. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank the First Lady, Kathy Sisolak, as well as Mark Salinas, Megan Messerly, Jacob Solis, and Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez for joining me on today's episode. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching Indie Matters on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to tell me who you think is going to win the caucus here in the state, you can do so by emailing me at joey at the nvindie.com. If you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at thenvindie.com. People with Bodies is our theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>